Revelation chapter 19 as we continue in our study, Revelation 19. You're more awake, so answers should be really quick with these this morning. Name a beverage people drink with their breakfast. Oh man, you, I think you've covered them all. Liquor, I don't know, I don't know. Okay, water, prune juice, grape juice, milk, orange juice, coffee. Here we go. Name a liquid in your kitchen you hope no one will ever drink. What's that? Dish soap, it's there, it's there. Drano, dish soap. What else do you have? Yeah, there you go. Here we go. Drano, pipe cleaner, bacon grease, soy sauce, cooking oil, vinegar. Number one was the dish soap. Name a type of gun that doesn't shoot bullets. I think I did this one six months ago. There you go. You guys are good. Son of a gun. I don't know. Paintball, biceps, okay? Those, those guns. BB gun, water gun, stun gun, nail gun. Besides a pillow, name something you might rest your head on when you go to sleep. You got it. Here we go. The back of the pew. Okay. <laughs> Never happened here. The arm of the couch, stuffed animal, your arm, another person, blanket, and bed. Okay, let's do this one. This one's a little bit tougher. These different terms show up in the book of Revelation. Which one of those or ones of those show up only in the book of Revelation? Antichrist? Okay. Do you think Antichrist shows up only in Revelation or other places? Okay. Anybody have an opinion? Okay, well, what about Antichrist? Yes or no? It shows up in other places. John writes about Antichrist, maybe not the person, but Antichrist in 1 John. False prophet. Revelation only? Okay. The false prophet, not false prophets. The false prophet. It's in Revelation only. Okay, Satan, the name Satan. Okay, it's other places. 144,000. It is in only the book of Revelation. Armageddon. Only Revelation 16, 16, the exact word, Armageddon. Okay, the thought comes up out of Joel, but it shows up here. Okay, it's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament, but Armageddon itself. Rapture. In fact, the word rapture doesn't even show up in the Bible. Okay, Alleluia. Okay. Alleluia only shows up in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, is what we mentioned last week. Okay? Only in the book of Revelation, New Testament, but it shows up in the book of Psalms. Oops, you didn't see that. Okay. Okay. Let me see where I'm at. Thousand years. Okay. Does it, where else in the Bible? Anybody have an idea? A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Almighty, the only other one is 666. Okay, that shows up there. So where we're at in this study is we are hitting chapter 19. Here's a graph of timeline so we get it. The very first event, when we think of future events, what's the first event that we are going to be involved in? Next event. 
Okay, the rapture of the church, which is going to happen at any moment, so to speak. Um, and then sometime after that begins what is called the 70th week of Daniel that we've talked about. The beginning of the 70th week of Daniel begins with what event? The signing of a covenant between Antichrist and Israel is going to happen where he signs this. Why? I don't know. Is there indication of a war that is happening at the very beginning where Ezekiel talks about burning the weapons for seven years? So there's a possibility there's a war that kicks off. Antichrist comes in and comes to Israel's aid by signing this treaty because, because Israel is not a popular country in the Middle East. Anybody notice the news of late? Okay, so um, what happens then is that kicks off the seven years of tribulation, which is divided in the Old Testament and New Testament in two periods that it's talked about. Talked about three and a half years or 42 months or 1,360 days. Uh, did I say 13? Is it 13 or 12? Six, whatever. Okay, it's broken down. <clears throat> and so we talk about, Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, the first half is going to be more pleasant for the Jews, but the second half, they're going to be hunted down. And so there's judgments that take place, the seal judgments in the first half, the trumpet judgments in the second half. There is a third set of judgments called, and they occur when? Okay, right towards the very end. But in the middle, Satan's cast from heaven, which starts this really vindictive worldwide rule of Antichrist, and that's when the judgments come, the bold judgments directed against Antichrist and his kingdom. And uh, then we're getting to the very end. There's going to be events like the destruction of Babylon, Antichrist city system. There's going to be the Battle of Armageddon. All of this is in conjunction with one another. And then there's the marriage of the Lamb and the second coming of Christ that are, that, that are associated together. That happens right in chapter 19. And so several of these things in chapters 18, in 17, 18, we talked about the destruction, the bold judgments. And then we're going to get into the battle of Armageddon. But right before that, he mentions, it, uh, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. And then he talks about the second coming of Christ. That's where we left off last time, where there's this chorus of people rejoicing in the first five, six verses of chapter 19. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. They're excited. They give multiple reasons because of God's greatness. They talk about how God is judging the wickedness of this Antichrist uh, capital system. The Lord God omnipotent, he is reigning. In other words, he's taking control finally, wrestling out of Satan's hand. And then he says, also the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's in chapter 19, verse 7. Let's pick up there. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, God, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, write, blessed are they which are called about unto the marriage of the Lamb, marriage supper, excuse me, of the Lamb. And he says, these are true sayings of God. We stopped last week when we were talking about this marriage of the Lamb. When exactly is it? What exactly does it entail? And I ended up sharing with you just some ideas that in scriptures that you pointed out, the Lamb is the church of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. The bride is the uh, church of Jesus Christ. There's multiple passages in the New Testament that clarify the bride 
we are part of it, the bride of Christ being the church. And we said that in order to understand this, you have to understand ancient Near Eastern culture, especially Jewish culture, with how they would do the wedding. We talked about the planning, the proposal, which could be done by parents when the kids are little, or if there's adults that the parents allowed them, then all of a sudden what they do is they come to a point where the best man goes and makes a proposal to the family of the bride and uh, they work out some type of a payment plan for the bride. Then there is that idea of a payment that they have to pay and once this payment plan is, is done and it's procured then what happens is it's a contract that they're married. They're engaged but actually by their law it's as binding as they were married. And they're even called husband and wife while they're in engagement. Even the New Testament does that where it says that Joseph and his wife talking about Mary, and they still haven't been married, but they were in that contracting, that uh, engagement period. And so the only way you dissolve it is by a bill of divorcement. Then you had the preparation for up to a year period that the man would go away and build a house. When I say go away, it's the idea that he's going to his father's property and building a house. She is then taking care of preparing, getting everything together for household that she would have, and typically they would wait a year. Then they come to this idea that after uh, there's going to be the wedding. And when the wedding would take place, they don't exactly, they would have an idea of the day, but they wouldn't have an idea of exactly what time of that day. The groom would come, pick up the bride, and then escort her and those who were with him, uh, his friends, whoever, they would escort back to his parents' house. And at his parents' house, they would start the festivities of the wedding itself. And so the idea is that in scriptures, we have to be ready. We don't know exactly when he's coming back. Uh, to take us, and Jesus is already in heaven. And so we get the parable of the oil lamps. You're familiar with that. The presentation is when you're there, the couple is back. Typically, they would be um, standing before parents, others who are initially there. They'd be underneath this canopy. They would be all dressed up. Both the bride and the groom were extremely dressed up. And the goal was to dress up like a king and a queen because this is your day. You are dressed up. The gal would have this veil on and sometime possibly during the ceremony she would take off part of the veil or some of her clothing lay it over his shoulder or he would take his garment, his outer garment, his cloak and lay it over his, her shoulder if it happened either way and it could happen either way in, uh, in difference uh, of opinions of those who write about it. Then they would say and the government shall be upon his to indicate that the groom is now the one who's protecting and he's guiding in the home and she is dependent upon him. And during that presentation aspect, what would happen is they would, uh, they would then share whatever vows they would have by basically set by the parents. And uh, so this was done in a public way, but maybe not everybody is there yet because the celebration could last for typically up to how long? three to four days to a week, depending upon the finances. And not everybody would be there at the initial part. And so <clears throat> they would have this presentation where the parents would bless. By the way, there's no clergy involved. 
They didn't do that at that time. Um, and so that's a very modern type that the clergy is involved in the recent couple hundred years. But the presentation takes place. Then you have, and last week I kept these separate, now I'm going to blend them. You have the party in the privacy moment that we mentioned uh, last week. There would be this meal that's going to take place with your guest and the celebration. And the bride and the groom would be as the king and the queen sitting and looking over everybody else as they're celebrating. And there would be this party that we mentioned could last for several days. Sometime during this moment, okay, sometime when some people are there, okay, how deep into the multiple days we had, there's a difference, typically they most agree that it's probably early, is they would then have their private moment. I didn't say anything, didn't want to explain, because last week there was a group of kids that came in just as we were at this point, and I didn't feel appropriate that the elementary kids were in the room, so let me be a little bit risque here with you, because we're dealing with just adults, is um, the privacy moment, the Jews wanted to make sure that everything was kosher, is they, the, the groom and couple would go and consummate the marriage, and they would literally bring back some type of a bloody evidence that she was a virgin. And that was part of the public attestment that they've consummated the marriage and that she had been faithful to her vows, uh, to him. And so um, then they would have this party. Now, this again, that privacy consummation, when did that happen in the course of this party? I don't know. So I was reading multiple different authors who are, who are you know, experts in those fields. They vary somewhere how many people were there. Was it just the family? Was it even some of the guests? But it happened sometime shortly after the presentation and during that party time. And they would, uh, rep- they would present that, that uh, sheet or whatever to show that, uh, of the purity. The analogy is very clear. The analogy as Jesus uses this, he proposed through John the Baptist to them. Israel refused his, uh, his payment to the, for the church then ultimately was made at the cross. He's returned to build a place for us. We read he's committed to us. There's no way he's breaking this commitment. This is part of the fact that we know we have eternal security as part of this whole culture. Um, and so the rapture is when he comes and gets us, takes us home to his father's house. Sometime then in Revelation 19, when the marriage supper is at hand, it's sometime within this, we're back at the father's house, the presentation, the quote-unquote privacy moment when there's commitment made, but it still isn't the full party. And so we're right in Revelation 19, what he's describing, as I understand it, Revelation 19, he's saying it's at hand. It's ready to happen. The bride's here. We've, you know, we've made commitment. She's presented herself spotless, wrinkled. The Father has blessed, and we're ready to kick off the party that in, the, in this aspect, it's going to last for years and years and years and years uh, through the millennium. And so the marriage that we, when the marriage supper, the marriage and the bride, all of that, let's just highlight a few things out of this text, okay? It describes her, her appearance, and it describes how the bride's clothing and what she looks like. What do you have in Revelation 19? How's she arrayed? Fine linen, clean and white. Okay, the wording that's used there is she's in some beautiful garments, literally, uh, from the original language. The idea of her clean is it is dazzling. It is brilliant. It is reflective. Do you have any other events, people, cre- creatures, showing some radiance in heaven? 
Can you think of any that are radiant? The multiple angels are, are appearing as radiant. So we're going to have some brilliance, some radiance that's from the clothing that Jesus Christ provided. It's pure. Uh, it's clean. Um, and so he's talking about this, this clothing. And the point is that the bride of Christ, us, we're striking in appearance in that sense that we're catching attention. And, and this fits with what he, John wrote, wrote earlier. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been re- revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed with him, we shall be like him, and we shall be as he is. And so there's going to be this beauty, this reflection, this radiance, all provided by Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, these are the same garments we're going to wear when we go to battle. Jump down in a few verses. Okay, when we come out of heaven with Jesus Christ, it says the army which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. How are they clothed? Fine linen. What else? White and clean. The same garments, which is indicative that's the same people coming out of heaven with Jesus, the bride of Jesus Christ. The fine linen is, he defines it, the fine linen that is beautiful. In this text, he says it's the righteousness of the saints. The question I have with that, okay, is because it says she clothes herself, okay, with the righteousness of saints. Does that mean we create and get our own righteousness? No. Then what's it mean? How do we clothe ourselves with righteousness? By accepting what Christ is offering us. Okay, And so the garment, if you look at the wording again, the garment is of this righteousness is given to her. It's a gift from whom? The lamb. Okay, He gives it to her and the, the bride, us, we apply it to our lives by accepting that gift that he's given to us, that righteousness. And so she's taking advantage. Don't let somebody tricky into saying, oh, this verse is indicating we have to live a certain way to be accepted by Jesus Christ. We have to do enough good works and good deeds. No, look at all the wording in it. The righteousness is a gift given by Jesus Christ. She just has to apply it or take it to her own life. That is, we do. And so we know that this idea is not our own righteousness because how many, uh, what verses come to your mind? Any? About our righteousness? There is none righteous. Any other verse? Okay, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so we could, we could just put down all kinds of different verses that talk about the righteousness which Jesus Christ provides that we don't have any in and of our own. So you have multiple different passages that support that concept that she didn't create this, we or we didn't create it. Something else is that idea now we're being wedded to Christ He's presented himself a glorious church. And again, I don't know all the, maybe you know, but I don't know from the text, all the sequences of exactly what is what it happening other than the, he, the church is presented, there's the wedding, and there's going to be the celebration. And so in that, he makes this comment, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper. This is the party. This is the celebration. Who would typically be invited to a celebration of a Jewish marriage? Um, in, in their culture, just typical wedding, who would typically be invited? Family? Friends? Okay. Yeah, people, typically people that they know. Yes, would you agree with that? Okay. 
is there not parable about a supper being in a, you know, and people are too busy to go to the wedding? And then what happens? He says, go into the, in the street, highways and byways and invite anybody who will come. And so if you remember, that concept is that the gospel then is spread to everybody. Well, the point being is that Jesus is going to have a marriage supper. And he's inviting people. And so there's the public feast that is going to take place. It hasn't happened yet. It is this celebration. And uh, the vows, whatever that aspect has been done. But the invitation is basically come and celebrate. Well, the celebration is going to take place, as I understand it, after the return of Christ to earth and he puts down all the enemies. And so who's invited to that? Well, if we go back to Old Testament scriptures, we're going to find out that there's going to be those invited into the kingdom would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, specifically mentioned that they're going to be in the kingdom. Okay? Are they part of the church? No. Okay? We know as well Old Testament prophets are going to be a part of the kingdom specifically stated in Luke where it says Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Old Testament prophets. Then we read about John the Baptist is going to be there in the kingdom okay, at this, this time of great festivity. But go to Daniel chapter 12. This isn't one of those prophecies out of the book of Daniel that has already been given. The reader is expected to already understand Daniel 12. Revelation is building upon it. So we're doing it in reverse. We're going through the book of Revelation. But the assumption is you you are familiar with Daniel 12. Daniel 12. Head back there. Verse 1. He says, at that time. What time? At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the people, for the children of thy people. Let's dissect that. Okay? There's some time in the future being mentioned. Who's Michael? Who is his particular assignment? Israel. Okay, we've already seen that earlier in the book. Okay, at that time, sometime in the future, Michael the the angel is going to stand up. He's the great prince, which stands for the children of Daniel's people. Okay, follow along so far? And the word stand has the idea of protecting, coming beside, providing assistance. Why is that? There shall be a time of what? Trouble such as... So it's going to be the most unique, troublesome time for Israel in all of world history. What obvious time does that take you to? Which part of the tribulation? The second half of the tribulation. Okay? And he says, at that time, Israel, your people, shall be what? They're going to be delivered. They're going to be rescued. Somebody is going to rescue them because remember that it gets so bad that unless the Lord returns, no flesh shall survive. Okay, so the, there's going to be this supernatural deliverance of everyone that shall be found written in the book. Okay, and you and I know there's a book of life that has a recording of those who are saved. And then he goes on. So he, he, if, I, if I understand all of prophecy and the Bible... He's, verse 1 is dealing with the tribulation and there's going to be a supernatural deliverance at the end of the tribulation. We who know the New Testament know that that is going to happen when their deliverance is going to take place when? Not the rapture. 
the rapture. No. No. Israel is different from the church. Okay, the church is the only one raptured. At the, at the end of the tribulation, remember, the city is being attacked. Israel is about to be destroyed, according to Zechariah. We've looked at this before, Zechariah 14. All of a sudden, something happens that causes Mount Zion to be split so the people can run to deliverer. Okay, what happens at this moment? Who, who rescues them? Jesus Christ returns from heaven, comes down to, to the Mount of Olives, okay, or the... Um, uh, Mount Zion comes down to the to the hilltop. Did he do that in the rapture? He came only. Now he comes all the way. This is the second coming of Christ. You got to put all the passages together, and um, he comes and then he delivers Israel. He's mentioned that reference already in the book of Revelation. Zechariah fourteen explains more. We already looked at that, so I'm not going to repeat that right now. So we're at, at the end of verse 1, we're at the second coming of Christ. He's come to earth. He's rescued the one. How many of the Jews survive and come to him? One-third of the Jews. One-third of the Jews will repent and come to him and of those surviving at that moment. And the one-third will be delivered. And uh, now what happens to them? Okay. And what happens to the, to the people, the saints that have been killed before then? He says in verse 2, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall do what? What's that? What is the event when people who are in the grave, in the earth, they come back to life? What do we call that? It's a resurrection. So this is a resurrection of what saints that he's referring to? The Old Testament saints. He says there's going to be a resurrection and some are going to go to what? What type of life? Everlasting life. Some of those that get resurrected will go to what? Okay, there's going to be contempt or judgment. And he talks about those who are of life. He says, they shall be wise and shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, etc., etc., etc. So at his second coming, one of the events that takes place at the second coming is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. When did our resurrection take place? At the rapture. Okay? But remember, the tribulation is an Old Testament period. It's still part of Israel's 490 years, the 70th week of Daniel. So their resurrection occurs at the end of the tribulation, those saints from old. And so you break it down, you have what we've already mentioned. They're going to be delivered, and some of the Jews will be resurrected to everlasting life. And so it happens after the tribulation is over. So that indicates to us that the Old Testament saints, their spirit, their bodies are reunited, and they are present, as was already mentioned, at the celebration of the marriage of the Lamb. They are some of the guests who are invited physically in their earthly bodies, their renewed earthly bodies. They will be there for that marriage supper and celebrate. And how long could the festivities go on? What's the next event? Okay, what does he establish? A kingdom. And how long is that initial kingdom? A thousand years. So that marriage supper is the idea that uh, the resurrected Jews will be the guests to be witnessing, celebrating the event of us being married to Christ at that, at that marriage supper. So here's the question that comes up. 
okay? Why is the church singled out as the bride of Christ? Why are we elevated and not Israel elevated to that position of being the bride? Okay, Israel did reject. They had opportunity and they rejected. Why, did, why does God choose us to be, you know, I mean, Israel's going to be, those who accept him are going to be in the kingdom. Why are we in this privileged position? What have we done to merit this great position? Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, he's going to make a comment where he's talking about why certain things happen. Okay, go to Romans 9, starting with verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I, and Esau have I. Okay, now again, understand the ancient wording. This is similar to what Jesus says. He that hate doesn't hate his parents is not worthy with me. Today, when we think hate, what do we think? Yeah, that's a great word. Despise, repulsive. That back in that time when the scriptures were being written, hate didn't mean necessarily an emotion of anger or or animosity. The idea is preference. Jacob have I preferred, Esau have I not preferred or elevated. Okay? Loving parents because you're following as a disciple of Christ. Does it mean you hate with the emotion of I want nothing to do with my parents, my siblings? No. It has the idea you're going to put who first? Christ over family. Okay? But again, we read it with American Western concept in mind when we read the word hate. And you have to understand words do change. Yes? Okay, and concepts. So he's saying, Jacob, did I prefer Esau? I didn't prefer. Okay, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That God would choose one and not choose the other? Is God unrighteous? In fact, what does the writer put down? God forbid. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills nor of him that runs but of God that shows mercy. What are we talking about in this passage? What aspect of God? The the sovereign choice of God. Period. Okay, and who are we to say you didn't treat me fairly? Okay, and he goes on, he talks about, he says, even, you know, Scripture said about Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised you up. Verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will harden. You will not say then unto me, why did he find fault for who has resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me this way? Hath not the potter power over the clay and the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, to make known his power? 
endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Then he goes on and talks about his riches of his grace. The only reason we're saved is by God's grace. Okay, That's the whole point. Why are we elevated to the position of bride? Yes, we understand Israel rejected and that plays into it. But it's all basically God's choosing. God's choice in this. And so we thank God that he chose. And the angel goes on and makes these comments now. The angel, ba- oops, I'm going to be in the wrong, wrong book. Revelation chapter 19. The angel then says to John, he says, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper. And so he wrote that down. And then the angel says something else to John at the end of verse 9. What does he emphasize with John? Revelation 19 verse 9, the very end. These sayings are true. Why, why does he have to say that to John? Okay, John's writing it down. Okay, at the moment, and I'm not, I'm not discounting John's faith, but at the moment of history as this is being recorded, what is happening to the church at large? There's persecution going on. Where's John? He's on the island of Patmos because of persecution. Everything is looking miserable. Did the early Christians, when things got miserable, say, where are you, Lord? I mean, when the Thessalonians were dying, they wrote Paul and they said, something's wrong with the teachings of Jesus. Didn't he say he was coming back? And now if he comes back, will our friends be left behind at the rapture? And then that's why Paul writes and says, no, remember I told you by the word of the Lord that when he comes back, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And he has to explain that to the Thessalonians. Why? Because they were saying, we missed it. It's, it's gotten worse than what we thought it would get. And so John is getting all these visions of how bad is the world getting through the visions that John has gotten so far. It is really bad. And the angel is saying, now I'm going to tell you about the really good stuff. And these things are true. They're absolutely true. They're, they're positive. John, you know, there's going to be that coming kingdom. <clears throat> And again, you probably don't do this. But there are a number of us who do. Again, I'm not trying to discount your faith, but I know many, many myself and many others, there are moments we say, I know heaven is true. I really know it. I hope. Just those, just those momentary lapses sometimes in the middle of discouragement. Okay? And, I'm not the, and, and I know I'm not the only one that does this. John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he had, who was the greatest of all, he had a momentary lapse where he said, are you really the one that we were looking for? But he knew. Earlier he had said, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away. Okay? And so sometimes when we face life events, now you probably don't do this, Okay, maybe it'll never happen to you, but there's a whole lot of people, Christians, that when they lose a loved one, they feel really shattered. Okay, and they have to say, is it really, yeah, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. And Satan's on their shoulders saying, well, maybe. Okay, and so the angel is just reconfirming to John, hey, John, this is true. This is all true. The good stuff is you know, in our modern, if it's really good, it's probably too good. Okay, that's concepts. 
Okay? And so the angel is saying, even though it sounds too good to be, it's true. And so there's just that reaffirmation that happens in this moment that, um, that again, there's a lot. And remember, we didn't even mention this. There's a lot of heresies afflicting the church at this moment. This is in 95 A.D., they have a lot of false teaching going on in particular about what doctrine? Eschatology. And he has to write about that. And so John's reaction when the angel says this is really true, what, is the, what does John do? He falls down and does something. Okay, so all of a sudden we read that, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Why would John do that? Okay, okay, and again, your faith, you may not do this because, you know, you are stronger than many, many folk, but John all of a sudden just says, oh my word, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the angel says, don't fall before me. Yeah, worship the Lord. And again, he says, you know, the angel comments to him, he said, don't, don't continue to do this. Okay, John, don't continue to, to thank me. Don't continue to say, think it's me. You know, this happens to you sometimes. Somebody, somebody will walk up to you after you've, you've uh, done something fantastic in a spiritual way and it's really blessed their heart. And they might say, thank you, thank you, thank you. God really used you in my life. And you say, but it wasn't me, it was... It was God. And so John is like, oh, thanks, thanks, thanks. And the angel says, okay, and we know why. We understand all this. The angel is saying you can't worship angels. By the way, I certainly wish some other religions would get this verse in mind. You don't worship angels. Okay, and so the angel stops him right away. He chides. And the angel says, I'm like you. I'm a what? I'm a servant. I'm a fellow servant. Well, all we do is we are, we are serving God. God gets the glory. And he goes on, he says, I'm a fellow servant and of your brethren you know, who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, I'm just like you. We're just in the sense, worship God. Give God the glory. Give God the thanks. We understand the emotions of the moment, don't you? Okay, just understand it. Don't, don't run rampant with it. It's just John is excited because there's hope. And he's just, angel, thank you, thank you, thank you. Give God the glory. Then the angel makes a comment that is one of the most profound comments in all of the book of Revelation. But it's one of those that we very rarely talk about. The angel ends up and says this at the end of verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean? Take a gander, take a guess, you'll be in good company. There's about, you know, 12 different ideas that people have thrown out there about what this means. What do you think he's driving at? What's that? I didn't catch the first word. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. Any other thoughts? He's the end of the law, okay. Any other thoughts with Jesus and prophecy? I'm sorry? Jesus is the true prophecy, okay. Where does all prophecy point? You notice how we get excited about prophecy because we want to see the events and be in the know. 
But the angel is saying, really, all prophecy shouldn't point us to the events. It should point us to, I mean, what is, why were we created? To glorify God. What is, what is redemption planned through history? Glorifying God. In particular, what does the Spirit do in our hearts? Helps us to glorify, worship God, especially God the Son. And so what's happening here is I think just what you guys said, what you contributed, is that idea, he's the theme of all prophecy. All prophecy is him, okay? The prophecies are all about elevating and promoting Christ, Okay, this whole, this, this fits exactly what Jesus taught. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with two disciples, and they, are one, they start talking about, we don't understand why he died. We thought he was the promised one. And what does it say Jesus did? Jesus, beginning with scriptures, he says, O slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them in all scriptures... Concerning who? He pointed all... That would have been a wonderful seminary class to sit in on that road. Jesus pointing everything to Messiah himself. That, that fits this. When the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself. He will show you things to come. And the Holy Spirit's goal is to glorify who? Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me, Jesus said. So I think that angel is just recapping this idea that all these prophecies don't get caught up in the event, get caught up with the person of Jesus Christ, that this is all about him. And, so, and, and what strikes me is that, and again, you, didn't, you remember, the Bible didn't have, paragraph, um, didn't have chapter breaks or verse breaks. Yes, no? When it was written, those kings, things only came hundreds and hundreds of years later. I'm glad they're there, but they weren't inspired. So where there's a gap between verse 10 and 11, in the original there was no, gra- no gap. I'm wondering if worship God for the testimony of the Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy doesn't better fit with verse 11 and what follows. Because what is the ultimate greatest event in all of human history? The second coming of Jesus Christ to rule and reign in the earth. And so the angels just, this, this seems to be such a beautiful segue to talking about his coming. But let's just pause. Let's just wrap up here this section. Here's what we want to remember as we walk out. As incredible as all of this sounds, that we're going to be in heaven, we're going to be arraigned this way, that Jesus will make us brilliant which I struggle with because right now I'm not brilliant in this life. I feel like the, I, you know, I'm too many times still clothed in, my, in rags okay, of what I do. And so one day he's going to present us blameless, spotless, faultless. It's too good to be true. Yeah, that he will bring up our sins no more. And none of us feels worthy to be married, to be that intimate with Christ, but it's all of his righteousness. 
That's amazing. That to me is absolutely amazing. We remember our God reigns no matter what the trials, the troubles, no matter what lay ahead of us, that he reigns. We remember that only he is worthy of worship. As we embark in 15 minutes from now, we embark into worship. He alone is worthy of worship. Don't get caught up in all the details of everything here. Get caught up in worship with Jesus Christ. Okay? When we, and when we apply it. Okay? Remember, there's a great wedding feast ahead of us. This, this excites me. There's a great wedding feast. We're invited to be a part of it. We're invited to be it. <laughs> okay. We're, we're, and, he's, and it's all because of his. The greatest person in all prophecy, the greatest thing, everything points to Jesus Christ. Which if all of the stuff points to Jesus Christ in the word of God to magnify him that the Father wants to magnify and exalt the Son, then don't you think what we do ought to be the same thing? Let's make sure we focus on Christ. So our worship this morning when we start, think as we're worshiping Jesus. Jesus Christ and what he means to you. Let's stop there.